This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. As the culture wars intensify, it seems that all sources of neutral authority get challenged, and that includes even opinion polls. Accusations about bias and unreliability fly around, and yet everyone seriously engaged in the political process studies them closely because they think they contain important truths and produce insights that might help them win. So are polls becoming more reliable because of improved technique or less so perhaps because of the increasingly fractured nature of Western democracies? Well, Mark Pack is a British polling expert who for many years has worked with a centrist political party in the UK, the Liberal Democrats, and he's put together a book with the latest thinking on polls called Polls Unpacked. So welcome, Mark. Welcome, lovely to join you. And let's just begin with this fundamental concept of waiting. Now, you might imagine you just get a random sample of people for your opinion poll. How possible is it to get 1,200 people, let's say, who are a genuine random sample? It's very hard to get a properly random sample because, for example, some people are more willing to take part in polls than others. Some people are busier than others. So it's a bit like trying to draw the perfect circle. You can get pretty good. You can get very good even at drawing the perfect circle. But if you squint closely enough, you'll see it's not perfect. Likewise, although pollsters have tried sometimes really hard to get a properly random sample, it's essentially impossible to get a genuinely random sample. So what pollsters therefore do is they look at the, resu- the results they've got of who they have managed to speak to, whether it's online, on on the internet or in, in face-to-face or whatever, and then weight their results to make the results properly representative of the overall group. So for example, you might have a look at the results from your polling and see you didn't get to speak to nearly as many teenage men as you should have for the right proportion uh, compared to the population as a whole. And therefore, the results that you did get from the teenage men you did manage to speak to get weighted up to make that adjustment. And of course, where that adjustment you know, works well, that's great. It makes the poll more accurate. But one of the problems pollsters can run into, and they do from time to time, is that their adjustments end up not being right because maybe their demographic information isn't fully up to date or maybe there's some criteria which they didn't used to wait by but which has suddenly become important and therefore they've not they're caught out by not having waited for that so waiting is a good thing generally makes things better but when the polls go wrong it almost always is also ironically part of the explanation for what's gone wrong so if you could get a random poll would it always work would it be reflective? No. And this is the, the thing that I think people sometimes forget when talking about randomness and polls as if randomness is perfection. And it's a bit like, think of tossing a coin. Supposing you've got a completely fair coin, so half the time it would be heads, half the time it would be tails. But actually, you know, anyone listening can put what I'm about to say to the test, grab your nearest coin, flip it 10 times, and a good number of people listening will have not got five heads and five tails exactly. They'll have maybe got six heads or three heads 
or eight heads perhaps. So even a purely random sample has in it a natural degree of variation. And that's why when it comes to say tossing a coin, if you wanted to check whether or not the coin was fair, you toss it a lot of times to be pretty sure that the answer you're getting is properly representative. And although polls go for you know, a, a large enough sample to be to like with tossing a coin more time to sort of even out that randomness generally, there's always that small risk that you've got what's often called a rogue poll where just by bad luck, your sample happens to be rather off, just like by bad luck, or if you're betting on it, maybe by good luck, if you toss a coin 10 times, you might get nine heads. Yeah, so okay, so waiting is absolutely crucial. Uh, you can't do it without waiting, really. And yet, it seems to be a very sort of, it could easily go wrong, waiting, because you know, how can you predict how many young people will turn out for an action, how many old people will turn out? What are the difficulties in waiting? Waiting really has two sorts of difficulties. One is around what are the sorts of characteristics of people that you want to make sure you wait for? And some of those are relatively simple, like uh, in a country like Britain with a good census that's reasonably regularly updated once a decade, you can do things like make sure you've got the right number of people over 60, the right number of women, the right number of people from Scotland. That's relatively straightforward, although it can sometimes go wrong, like it happened in 1992 in the British election where they were still using the census data from uh, the 1981 census as the 91 census hadn't yet come out and that caused a problem but basically that sort of criteria works okay however there are also other criteria which are much harder to know what you should wait to and two good examples of this one is level of interest in politics something that pollsters have found in Britain and in the US and elsewhere in recent years is they often get too many people who are really interested in politics taking part in their polls and that skews the result because they have don't have enough people who are a bit disengaged with politics but might actually vote and there is no sort of objective source of information there's no equivalent of a census that can tell you this is how you should measure people's level of engagement with politics and this is what the correct answers are that you should wait to for your overall sample so that's one set of problems the other set of problems with waiting and you touched on in your question is around turnout because not everyone votes and therefore having your poll accurately represent the views of people who are going to vote is really important if the purpose of the poll is an election poll to tell you you know how are, how are different parties candidates likely to do in the election and what's worse is not only does not everyone vote but when you ask people are they are you going to vote or not and you then check it subsequently against the records of whether or not they voted we're not very good at predicting whether or not we're going to vote you get quite inaccurate answers to that question so again there are lots of different ways that pollsters try to deal with that but fundamentally it's one of the reasons why the consistent pattern is the lower the turnout in an election on average the more inaccurate polls tend to be uh, because it's so hard to wait accurately for turnout so how long have you been doing polls in britain well, I first started looking up the details of polls as a teenager in a public library back in the 1980s. So the answer is probably longer than is good for me. <laughs> right, a long time. And how often have you correctly predicted turnout? Well, so, yeah, it, it's hard to do. And I think one of the reasons it's hard to do is that it's really tempting to say, let's ask people, yeah, are, they, are you likely to vote or not? And take that answer at face value. But then you know from experience that 
those answers often end up being wrong and inaccurate. So it's tempting to build really complicated models that take into account, say, past behavior or, you know, the previous election, how inaccurate are people's answers, and yet let's use that to adjust this time's answers and so on. So it's tempting to build really complex models. And those complex models often work better in the short term, but then get caught out when there's a wider change of circumstances, which means the premise of those more complicated models ends up to being wrong. And so one of the very few pollsters who has been consistently really good with her polling figures is Anne Seltzer from Iowa in the US. And she's got this really rare record of having been the outlier and yet turning out to be right more than once. Most pollsters who have their moment of glory when their figures are different from other people's figures and they turn out to be right then disappear back into the pack at future elections. So Anne Seltzer's, you know, one of the world's best pollsters, really impressive track record. And she goes for this really simple approach of just asking people, you know, how likely they are to vote and pretty much taking their answers at face value. And yet, although that works for her as you know, with her fantastic track record, lots of other pollsters find if they take that approach, it doesn't work nearly well enough for them and therefore build these more complex models. So there's a, a genuine debate at the heart of modern political polling as to which approach is best and that's why you know you see uh, often a fair variation in the results that pollsters come up with because if they've taken different approaches to turn out that ends up with different headline figures and it's also why it's not a simple case of saying one approach is right and the other is wrong because both approaches have had their successes and both have had their failures. And the more you describe it the more amazed I am that polls are ever anywhere near right. Indeed, it's a bit like, I think, maybe being a tightrope walker. I've never been a tightrope walker myself, so I'm inferring what it's like to be a tightrope walker. But my understanding for those people who have walked across tightropes is that the key to being a successful tightrope walker isn't that you get everything right and that your balance is perfect all the time. But it's as you walk along the tightrope, lots of little things will go wrong, but you constantly adjust. And as you your foot slips a bit one way, you lean the other way. As you breathe in too heavily, which knocks your balance off one way, you lean the other way. And that is very much what polling is like, that there are all of these different factors that can knock the numbers off one way or the other. And it's not that the good pollsters are perfect with everything, but the good pollsters are good enough that the different errors balance out and therefore you end up with an overall figure that is pretty good. And what you sometimes see in elections, and this is what happened, for example, in Britain in 1970, perhaps the, the most famous and dramatic polling miss in, in, in British politics was the 1970 election. When you look at afterwards at what went wrong, it's not like the pollsters just had one thing that went wrong. It's like they had a combination of different factors all lining up unfortunately, in the same direction to push their polls off and therefore produce red faces all round. Yeah, and just to be clear, I mean, there's an interesting thing that happened in 2016 when the New York Times gave some raw data from some polling to four yeah. different polling organisations. And they, they, they put them through their black box, processed the numbers and came up with different results, right? Yeah, it's, it was a really nice example. And I'm as you say, the, the figures they got out of giving four different pollsters Clinton and Trump numbers and say, you know, apply your methodology to this data, see what your headline figures are. The headline figures were different. It's worth saying they weren't that different. They were certainly different enough that in a really close election, that level of difference 
you know, it's significant. But if if it had been a landslide for Trump or a landslide for Clinton, that variation in their methodology and, and hence in the headline figures wouldn't have been particularly significant. And this is perhaps the ironic tragedy of the polls, which is that we all tend to be, and, you know, myself included, most interested in what the polls say when an election is looking really close, because that's when everyone gets excited and tense and worried and hopeful about what the result will be. And everyone pours over the latest poll to see who's ahead, who's down. But of course, the very closest elections are the ones where one should have the most caution about the polls, because if it's only two or three points in it one way or another, that's where the polls might end up being wrong. If one party or candidate's 20 points ahead of the other, doesn't matter if there's a bit of an error in the polls, you still clearly know the result. But of course, (laughs) those landslide and safe results are the ones where we tend to be less interested in the polls because they're less, less exciting. So one should have a bit of sympathy for pollsters that we tend to pay most attention to them at the very moment when it's hardest for them to get it right. And just to, to explain this pretty obvious point, but in, in the US, when Trump came along, that must have thrown all the waiting because he was reaching voters that probably wouldn't have voted before. And then all the polls would be out because of that, right? Yeah, that was definitely a factor. Although in 2016, the polls in the US weren't as wrong as sort of popular memory has it. Um, in the, If you look at the average of the polls just before polling day in the 2016 US presidential election, Trump versus Clinton contest, uh, take, say, the real clear politics average. It had Clinton 47, Trump 44. The actual result was Clinton 48, Trump 46. So the average of polls was one point out on Clinton, two points out on Trump. The polls had Clinton ahead. The actual vote totals, when they're all counted, had Clinton ahead. So it was, wasn't Yeah, pretty good, actually, except, of course, that Trump won. And where the polls had gone wrong was in a relatively small number of states, particularly a trio of states in uh, the northern half of the US that had voted Democrat quite consistently for a while. Trump won all three of them by small margins. And the state polls in each of those three states had pointed to Clinton winning and not Trump winning. And so yeah, it was in that sense a quite a shock, obviously, when Trump won. But as it was a bit a shock in the sense of people having placed too much emphasis on, or rather, drawn too much certainty from what the poll figures were saying, and drawing more certainty than really the figures necessarily justified. In terms of those states where the polls did go wrong, and those particularly those three states in the northern US, it seems to have been partly, as you say, a matter of sampling. The polls had too many people with higher levels of formal education than they should have had for the electorate. And Trump in particular was successful at reaching out to people with uh, lower levels of formal education who are normally less likely to vote. Um, but also in those state polls, a lot of the polling wasn't done very close to the election day. And there also seems to be quite a late swing to Trump. And again, that's a common feature of polling, uh, polling disasters and polling problems problems is that when there's um, a late swing, if you're not polling right up until the day before polling day, it's quite easy for your numbers to be out. When you are trying to understand what's happening in public opinion, do you look at one pollster who you respect and trust? Or do you like the things that some media organisations do of taking an average of all the main polling organisations and putting that up every day? Yeah, I, I think pollsters are a bit like the small print that you see on financial investment advertisements, you know, the, the, the wording that always warns you past performance is no guide to future performance and so on. In that if you look at who has been the best pollster at any particular election, 
it's not that common for them to be the best pollster next time round. And Seltzer, as I mentioned, is this really rare, really impressive exception. But in the UK, for example, it's quite common for the pollster who's top of the pack at one election to be in the middle of the pack or even a laggard at a subsequent election. So it's risky, really risky to sort of pick your favourite pollster and think they're going to be they're going to be right. Um, and averaging is also a bit risky because what averaging is helpful in terms of giving you a sense of the overall picture. But if there are real differences between the polls, averaging just makes that disappear into one number. And we see that at the moment, actually, in the UK, in the looking at the polling averages is you know, useful. But what it hides is that there are basically two different sets of answers that we get at the moment for the level of conservative support. And this depends on how the pollsters treat people who voted Tory in 2019, but currently say they're unsure who they're going to vote for. Different methodologies treat those people in different ways and produce different headline answers. And the average then you know, smushes all of those together. But the key thing really to learn, and this is why looking at the individual polls is useful rather than picking a pollster or just looking at the average, is that there is this consistent difference. And there is because there is this pattern of people who voted Tory in 2019 currently being unsure. And that's the picture to know. And that therefore shows us that, yeah, there's definitely a big group of people whose votes are up for grabs that could swing the next election. And it's then a subjective judgment as to whether you think well the fact that they were Tory in 2019 means that's quite good news for the Tories they're quite likely to recover or you take the view that well if they've gone from Tory to now unknown they're very much up for grabs for an opposition party uh, to win win them over and that subjective argument you know there's not going to be a definite right or wrong with but that subjective argument is at least much better informed if you understand the difference between the polls rather than just looking at the average that smushes all the differences together. In, in the many years you've been doing this, you must have worked with yeah, a lot of different politicians who were trying to understand these polls. And I, the way you describe it, it's quite a lot of interpretation going on. So were there some politicians who are you know, just good at this and able to interpret sensibly the data and others who just took a headline figure and got misled? I think the key skill that differentiates the, the better from the worst politicians when it comes to understand polling data is actually a more general skill, which is how do you react to somebody bringing you bad news? Uh, because if you're accurately and fairly reporting polling data to somebody, sometimes the news is not going to be great. And if their reaction is to either get really angry <laughs> or to get really disbelieving, and asking lots of questions, but never asking a similar amount of questions about news that's good, then they're going to end up with a distorted picture. But also, it's really hard for people to carry on being good and honest and accurate in their reporting of bad news if they know every time they report some bad news, they're going to get shouted at or have half an hour of questioning about are they really you know, completely useless and have they added up their numbers wrong? So I think the key skill, and it's obviously a, a generally a really important skill in life, is how well politicians take to bad news and how much they remember to be as sceptical of good news as it is of bad news. It's definitely worth asking questions about does this really add up? Are you interpreting this right? Is there enough evidence behind it? But you should do that when the answers you're getting are the ones you wish to be true, as well as when the answers you're getting are the ones you really fear and you know and you don't want to be the case. It's interesting, and and some some politicians are capable of that. Yeah, absolutely. And but but I and I I think it's. <laughs> Part of what's often the unspoken story behind the role of political polls in politics is that personal dynamic, that personal relationship between the political pollsters that are working for a political party or a candidate 
and the candidate, the campaign manager, etc. themselves, that that dynamic is a really crucial one. And it's a bit similar to the dynamic that we see in lots of different countries at the moment between their, say, their chief medical officer or equivalent person and the prime minister or the person in charge of the health system. How those two people interact, you know, between each other when they've got data with a degree of uncertainty about it is really crucial to getting really significant public health decisions right. And on a much smaller, much more minor scale, it matters just as much, therefore, in terms of making good use of polling information as well. How much of polling is for commercial businesses and how does that compare with what you're describing for politicians? Mm. So outside the US, at least, nearly all the political polling that happens is a pretty small part of the overall business of the polling firm or the market research firm. And that's actually really good because what it means is that for most of these polling firms, their political polling is sort of the high-profile attention-grabbing sort of form of advertising, essentially, for their services overall. And therefore, they've got a real incentive to try to get it right. Because if you get it wrong and the headlines are all about how your polling firm got the election wrong, that then has a horrible knock-on effect on all of the other work that you're trying to get. And the US is a little bit different because the US politics has got so much more money about it and therefore there's so much more polling that happens and you do have pollsters who are primarily pollsters who work for Republicans or primarily pollsters who work for Democrats. But in the UK, at least, polling is a small part of of what pollsters do and therefore there just isn't the commercial sense in deliberately producing biased results because if you did, your reputation gets a knock and you lose all your other business. You've talked about turnout and it just prompted this thought. In a country like Australia where voting is compulsory, does that make it easier to produce accurate polling results? It should do. It definitely should do. Although the last Australian federal election at the time we're recording, there's another one coming along shortly, but at the time we were recording the last one, um, had quite a notable polling miss. Uh, And so there's been a whole set of polling post-mortem in Australia and there's been a set of changes to how the polling industry in Australia operates including a really welcome set of moves towards greater transparency. Pollsters in Australia have traditionally been extremely secretive um, about their work and, and I think one of the reasons in Australia why there you know has been that this polling miss and there you know they've had some stumbles with the polls you know, further back in the past is that Australian pol- politics is often very close Although they have preferential voting for the House of Representatives and they have STV for the Senate, the margins between winning or losing or winning or or, or losing an extra Senate seat or winning or losing an overall majority in the House of Representatives has often been very small. And if you're in a world of politics where the margins of support for different parties are are quite small, then that really puts the pressure on the accuracy of of polling. Um, Even a landslide election victory in Australia doesn't involve that big a difference in support between the parties. In in the UK, I think it's fair to say politics is getting a little more complicated. You know, there's more regional variation in results. And we've got nationalist parties but also in the north of England, you know, maybe different patterns of voting to the south of England. Does that mean as those trends develop, you need a bigger sample to make the poll work? Yeah, and and this is one reason why it's really helpful that we have quite a lot of Scottish-specific polls in in Britain. Um, It's a shame that we have only relatively few Welsh-specific polls because when you're doing a UK or a Great Britain-wide poll, the 
you know, the difference between the SNP being on 30% or 50% in Scotland, which is politically a really big difference, is only a difference of a point or so one way or another in a UK or British wide poll. And so that's just too small a margin to be able to reliably pick up. So definitely that that is helpful. I think at the moment, the level of variation of politics within England is such that national polls generally do pick up uh, enough of enough of the nuance to be to be useful but you can imagine it's possible that say at the next election the areas of the red wall and the blue wall might politically move in quite different directions so i can i can definitely see how there's going to be a useful role for some polling that gets below those national totals as we get closer to the next election here Uh, but i guess what i'm asking is is the answer to that to have more local polls or to have one national poll with instead of 1200 let's say, in the sample, to have 2,400? And it could be either. Either, in theory, work. I think, in general, the doing the sort of larger national surveys that allow you to dig down into local areas more is a more reliable route because what it means is you've not just got the figures, say, for, OK, northeast of England, but you've got the figures for everywhere else to compare them with and think, well, OK, are the differences that we're finding from the northeast of England and elsewhere, do they make sense? Are they logical? Are the patterns, the sort of patterns we'd expect? And so that provides a really useful safeguard. If you're only polling northeast England and not everywhere else at the same time, you can't make those comparisons in the same way. And therefore, it is a riskier enterprise. And I think this is one of the reasons why in the UK, polls of marginal seats have had a pretty ropey track record over the years, because one of the problems is you're just looking at one slice of the country that you know is atypical but if you've not doing this you know comparable polling at the same time elsewhere you can't therefore think well are the differences we're finding really plausible or is it maybe they're suggesting we've not got something right with the poll so i'd generally go for larger national investigations to give you that better benchmark this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Can you talk me through the issue of don't knows? Because I think there are lots of ways of managing don't knows and they make quite a big difference yeah absolutely so when a pollster asks somebody who are you going to vote for or indeed maybe a question like do you approve of the prime minister's track record or are you in favor of a particular policy on immigration quite often people will say don't know particularly because often when you're polled you know you've suddenly been asked to think about politics uh when it's not something you think about that much the rest of the time so you know you question you've got to answer quickly it just don't know is you know often quite a common answer quite reasonably what should a pollster do with that don't know well when it comes to what do you think of the prime minister recording don't know is don't know makes a lot of sense when it comes to voting though if you're saying who you're going to vote for if there was an election tomorrow there isn't a don't know on the ballot paper and so what pollsters have found is that pushing the don't know a bit to say oh come on who are you really going to vote for versions of that give more accurate results because a lot of people who say don't know will actually vote and will actually pick up somebody on the ballot paper they won't just scribble don't know on the ballot paper or leave it blank and therefore, a bit of this, what's often called squeezing of the don't knows to say, come on, let's think about it. Let's 
tends to make polls more accurate. But there are different ways of doing that. You know, it can be that you push people a bit, go, oh, now come on, really think about it. Or it can be you think you would say maybe, well, okay, who did you vote for last time? And maybe allocate some of the don't knows to whichever party they voted for last time. So lots of different ways of dealing with it. And as you say, one of the reasons you get a variation in the headline numbers from different pollsters. Uh, but fundamentally, the reason it's done is because overall it makes the polls more rather than less accurate. But I guess it's a pretty obvious conclusion, but that means the more don't knows, really the less reliable the poll. Yeah, that's certainly the case. Although I think if you look at um, you know the occasions where there have been these big headline polling disasters, an unusually large number of don't knows very rarely features as part of the story. And so certainly people sometimes get excited about, oh, look how many don't knows there really are. And you know the election is really up for grabs and all of that is a I think people tend to place a bit too much emphasis on that sometimes. That said, of course, the level of don't knows is quite an interesting indicator. If you think at the moment when people are asked in polls, who do they think would make the best prime minister? Don't know does extremely well. And that does tell us something genuinely useful and insightful about the state of politics. Now, what about internal party polls? Because we often hear about them in election campaigns. You know, politicians will quite often say, oh, well, that's not what our internal polling is saying. And they seem to spend a lot of money on polls that are not published. Are internal party polls more reliable than the published ones? No, <laughs> in a word. Right. Um, and basically, the, you know, when you, when, if you ever see a news story where somebody's saying, oh, our internal polls say something different, almost always that's nonsense and doesn't turn out to be the case. And the thing with internal polling is because it's more secretive, there's less scrutiny and it's more likely to be wrong. And there's also that pressure of, do you really want to go to the party boss and tell them how disastrously unpopular they are? You know, there's all sorts of reasons why some biases might creep in. But also, of course, the sort of internal polling that gets leaked and mentioned in some way in public arenas, there's a somebody has always made a decision to leak it. And so there's a bit of an agenda there as to which you choose to get leaked. So these stories about, oh, our secret internal polls really tell us something different, almost always nonsense. But what internal polls do often do, which is very useful, is they delve into questions that are of interest to a party that don't really feature in the sort of headline polling that you get in the national media coverage. So, for example, po internal polling for political parties will often investigate the details of public opinion on a whole range of policy issues in a lot of detail, partly to help parties decide what policies to push, which ones to put on the front page of their manifesto and so on. And likewise, you do get internal polling that might delve into the levels of support in particular key swing constituencies, for example, much more than the overall national polls do. So there can absolutely be some extra insights, some additional information from internal polls. But you pretty much will be quids in if you take as a rule whenever you see a story that says an internal poll says something different contradictory from a public poll go and bet on the public poll being right okay <laughs> right clear now then what about internal polling i guess it's slightly different maybe it's more of a focus group in the brexit vote to leave the european union there was this phrase that the brexiteers used the whole time of take back control and it was very very effective and as i understand it it came out of internal focus groups where it resonated with a lot of voters so uh, that is a, a use of internal polling that works, right? Yeah, and focus groups are a really interesting tool. I mean, typically a focus group will have maybe eight or ten participants. So that's a very small number of people. 
Uh, and so they're not um, a direct alternative to a poll because you're not getting representative samples of people. You're not getting enough people in the room to be able to sort of say overall 83% of people thought X or Y. But what you do get is the chance to have more in-depth discussions with people. Um, and just to give an example of one of the questions focus group sort of organisers love using is to ask something like, you know, if a politician were an animal, which animal would he or she be? Uh, which can sound really silly and trite, but it's a really good way of just getting a sense of what is the gut emotional reaction that voters have to a particular politician. So last year... Um, there was various focus groups that got reported where people had been asked if Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, was an animal, which animal would he be? And an eagle was a very popular choice. And if you think about that, eagle is quite a emotionally rich and insightful answer because eagle is sort of smart and superior and above it all and maybe looking down on us a bit. And that's a very different answer than if people had said Labrador or if people had said tortoise or elephant. <clears throat> and so one of the nice things about questions like this is because they tap into that sort of deep, emotional, instinctive gut response. And also they provide a good way of getting that sort of insight, even from people who are maybe not that charismatic or not that used to talking about politics with others, you know, even if they might otherwise be a little bit sort of um, mumbling and brief in their answers. You know, if you get them to say an animal, you get a lot of insight from that. And, you know, Keir Starmer as an eagle is not something that you would directly get from a poll. So focus groups absolutely have their, 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 their role. And I think very often it's using a focus group, a set of focus groups and a set of polls in tandem that is the most effective because it's almost like the focus groups give you the clue about what questions to then ask in the poll. The poll gives you the overall sort of numbers, but the focus groups are telling you what's really important behind that and what's driving that. I wanted to ask you about proxy questions. Mm. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. If, if, if you ask someone how rich they are, they may not want to say... But you could ask a question which would indicate how rich they are, like, I don't know, what car they drive or something like that, which they may be willing to say. So is, is that a thing? And do proxy questions work? Yeah, and, and it partly can be that people sometimes are sort of not comfortable or happy to give an honest answer to a question. It may also be sometimes that people are not very self-aware. And may not know. So if you were to ask, for example, that question of, you know, how wealthy are you? Actually, a lot of people would struggle to give an absolutely accurate number off the top of your head. Because if, let's say, you have a mortgage, part of how wealthy you are is what's the net outstanding sum on your mortgage? And then add to that or subtract from that the net outstanding sum on your credit card. And, that, you know, it's quite, it's actually quite a complicated disc you know, calculation to make. So, so, but also people may have a sense of embarrassment or shame or boastfulness in answering that question. So quite often what can be useful, not just in politics, but also particularly in wider social science research, if it's investigating issues around, say, sexuality, relationships, sexual health and so on, is to ask either a proxy question, as you say, or there's some really clever techniques. Uh, one of which I really like is the sort of list approach where you give somebody a set of five questions that are yes, no questions, and you don't ask them to answer each one in turn, but you ask them to tell you how many they answered yes to and how many they answer no to. 
And so you might have in there quite an embarrassing question that people might not be happy to directly answer, but you just get them to tell you how many yeses, how many noes. And then you give, so you give that set of questions to one group of people, and then you take another comparable group of people and give them the same set of questions, except you change that one question. And so you can then see on average the difference of how many average yeses in one case, how many average yeses in the other case. That tells you how many people have answered yes to the embarrassing or the difficult question. Well, I can see that's quite clever, but it must introduce error. Oh, absolutely. None of none of these techniques are perfect. Um, but they but techniques like that have been quite successful at getting, you know, answers on those more sort of embarrassing questions where people might feel a bit reserved or un, you know unwilling to provide an honest answer and it's also why there is a, a reasonable track record actually of being able to get decent political polling out of countries without a particularly strong democratic culture that again providing degrees of sort of secrecy or discretion means you can tease answers out i would think that at the moment i would you know take a huge barrel of salt to apply to say any political polling in russia because people, I think, would, you know, even if you're doing polling that, strictly speaking, uses every clever trick to keep stuff secret and anonymous and so on, there's still the basic trust question of do people actually think and believe that that's going to be what happens and therefore they may hedge their answers or not take part anyway, even if you are doing everything right. But it's it's interesting how, um, you know, the political polling in places like China, obviously the Chinese Communist Party very tightly controls some of that, but, you know, there is political polling that, that happens that can produce interesting and insightful results, even in some of the most implausible of countries. So you're talking about sort of clever techniques. So let me ask you about multi-level regression and post-stratification analysis, which you talk about in your book, which basically uses quite limited national polling data to get local polling. How does it do that? Yeah, so MRP is sort of a bit like the, the current golden boy, golden boy or golden girl of political polling, because the Times newspaper splashed an MRP poll on its front page uh, during the 2017 election that pointed towards a hung parliament. And there were lots of people who said, ah, oh, no way, complete nonsense, etc. And then, of course, we did get on Parliament. So MRP had a high profile sort of debut in the public eye that went very well for it. Although at that election, there was another much lower profile MRP survey, which got the result completely wrong at the general election. So a bit of a lucky break for MRP as a methodology. But the basic insight of, of MRP is to say, look, if we're trying to work out the election result you know, what, how the election results will vary between different constituencies. And, you know, what's the result going to be in Darlington? What's it going to be in Horsham? What's it going to be in West Sussex and so on? You could do a huge amount of polling and poll enough people in each constituency, say, to get the results together. But that would be a mammoth exercise. If you just do a national poll, one or 2,000 people, that will give you a good overall national picture, but not enough detail to tell us for sure specifically are places, you know, university seats really behaving differently from the rest of the country because you've not got enough people in your national sample. So what MRP polling does is it takes a much bigger sample than normal, but not a completely, you know, implausible sample, uh, often in the tens of thousands of people. And it essentially tries to model each individual. So if you've got a voter in Canterbury who might be a middle-aged man who works in the public sector and voted Labour in 2019... You won't have very many of them in Canterbury, but you'll have a whole load of middle-aged men in your poll. You'll have a whole load of people in Canterbury. You'll have a whole load of people who work in the public sector and a whole load of people who, used to, who voted Labour in 2019. And so you can take each of those characteristics in turn 
and put them all together to model that particular individual who happens to have all of those characteristics. And so that allows you to get into a lot more nuance about saying this group of constituencies is doing this thing, this other group of constituencies is doing something else. The downside with MRP is it requires so much modelling and so much statistical smarts that there's also therefore all sorts of risks of getting things wrong. And 2017, the high profile one got it right, but the low profile one got it got it really badly wrong. So I think MRP's best role really is after the election, when you know whether it got it right or not. And if it did get it right, it provides all sorts of really insightful stories to help explain what happened in the election. But in advance of polling day, we need to be a bit cautious that, yeah, it's had some high profile successes, but fundamentally... It's so complicated that it's really hard to be sure if it's going to be right or not. You just you have so, to get a result in to see. When it, when it comes to the research behind this kind of new technique, it's obviously a lot of work's gone into this. Is that all done in the commercial companies or are universities got people who study this and are helping you know, create new methods and new techniques? I mean, MRP has a really sort of mixed background lots of different bits of research primarily from academics have fed into the development of the methodology and actually one of the key sort of early research papers that helped inform the creation of this methodology that we now use in political polling was using a massive sample of xbox user survey responses so people who are using the xbox games platform asking you know, survey questions responding to it as you can imagine people using a particular computer games platform not very typical of the population as a whole and some, some really smart brains reply to this question of well okay we've got huge volume of data that we know is unrepresentative can we develop some clever statistical techniques to take a big volume of unrepresentative data and make the answers representative. And so it's, yeah, lots of different areas of, of thought. You know, sometimes it's driven by academic research. Sometimes it's driven by the commercial sector and you know, what advertising and marketing sectors in particular, what they're trying to do to understand stuff. Sometimes it's driven by, you know, pollsters more directly. And all of that tends to, you know, tends to, to produce quite a regular flow of new ideas and experiments, which is good because political polling is sufficiently complicated that I think it's never a good idea to be ossified in terms of thinking there is this one way of doing it. It worked last time. It's therefore going to be the thing we're going to do forever in future. Yeah, well, given given how complicated it all is and how many variables there are, I wonder, do some companies adjust their results basically to, to, to join the herd? that They don't want to be an outlier. Yeah, the, I mean, this is a really tricky judgment to make. You know, imagine you've done something and you look around at your peers and your competitors and think they've all come up with a different answer to me. Does that mean I'm brilliant or does that mean I'm an idiot? <laughs> and it could be either. You know, sometimes being the outlier is because you're brilliant. Sometimes being the outlier is, no, look, everyone else has come up with another answer. Come on, <laughs> be be sensible. Think about whether you might have got it wrong. Yourself. So this is a dilemma. And there are various lovely stories, some of which I go into in the book of occasions where pollsters have found themselves the outlier and therefore thinking, should I stick with my guns because I should be really confident I'm right? Or should I maybe think, mm, perhaps I've got it wrong and recheck? And that you know that there are one or two sort of tragic cases where a pollster has been an outlier not stuck to their guns but actually it turned out they would have been right had they stuck to their guns but that's always going to be a, a dilemma um not just in polling as to whether being the outlier is is a sign of brilliance or idiocy 
Yeah, and not sticking to their guns means sort of changing the weighting to get a different result. Yeah, or not publishing the results or adding a whole load of extra caveats to the results and so on. Yeah, there, there are all sorts of reasons why you might think, oh, maybe this isn't right. Maybe I should think again. Do you bet on the political betting markets? I have occasionally. I, I try not to do it too often because I, as somebody who's a sort of activist in a political party as well it's far too easy <laughs> to end up you know wanting something to be true and the the most successful form of political betting is when you can be more dispassionate and yeah you know, if well if you, you if you're doing political betting for fun then obviously that's you know that's one thing but if you're doing political betting because you actually want to make some money out of it you need to be quite dispassionate and not too emotionally invested in different possible outcomes and as somebody active in politics that emotional investment normally <laughs> normally risks coloring the judgment so i hope i'm wise enough to not bet too often Okay, but when you see others doing it, and, and there are people, I think, who make money out of this, wh where do you see the biggest margin between, you know, the odds on the betting markets and the reality as, or, or sort of misperceived uh, misperceptions in the polling? Wh you know, where, where's the edge? So I think the edge very often is whether there is something that is changing in how politics is operating. And so you've seen this with my own party, the Liberal Democrats. We have, in the last sort of year or so, returned to a period where we're very good at winning parliamentary by-elections on ludicrously large swings. We've had two of the biggest swings in parliamentary by-elections since the Second World War within the last year or so. So we've, we've, ended, we've become really good at that again. There was a long period of time when we weren't very good at that. And so in the first of those two by-elections last year, where there was a huge swing and, you know, we won a really dramatic and famous victory in Chesham and Amersham, even the day before polling day, you could get about 12 or 13 to 1 on the Lib Dems winning. You know, for every £1 you bet, you would get more than 10 times your money back. So there was a ludicrously generous odds. And I think the reason there was that gap was because... Clearly, you know, in theory, you can understand that we might be in a world where the Lib Dems are suddenly back at being really good at winning parliamentary by-elections. But that's not a topic most people think about that much all of the time. And of course, you're always going to discount Lib Dems saying, hey, yeah, no, we're, you know, believe us, we're back at this, you know, back in the game. And so you do that, therefore get that failure to realise that the sort of the rules of the game have changed a bit. And therefore that quite often opens up a really big, big gap. The other is sometimes there is, you know... Um, sort of semi-insidery information. You know, if if ahead of, say, a leadership election in a party, quite often if you're active in a party, you'll have quite a good idea about whether somebody's going to declare as a candidate or not. You know, you might know whether you or your friends or your colleagues have been rung up by people on their behalf trying to solicit support. So sometimes there'll be a bit of extra insidery type information that you may be aware of ahead of that being properly reflected in the prices um, in the betting markets. But these days, a lot of political betting in Britain, at least, is matching of bets. So it's not the bookmakers themselves particularly taking a punt on what they think the price should be, but they're matching people you know, being willing to bet on either side. And therefore, quite often, <laughs> where the opportunities for good odds comes from is simply where there is a party that has a lot of wealthy people you know, supporting it, and there's a good chance of something adverse for that party happening, because those wealthy supporters of the party seeing things through the slightly partisan lens and will often be overwilling to bet on their party doing well. So that can often be quite an opportunity. 
Right, and that in, and that, that sort of introduces the idea that the betting markets, because I think there was a time when people said, because people were risking their money, betting markets tended to be very accurate. But in fact, that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, the, the evidence is quite mixed on this. Um, and fundamentally, the issue is that, as you say, what the betting markets take into account they factor in is all this other information that people might know above and beyond the polls. But the problem is that the betting market prices in the, in the end reflect the volume of money. And the volume of money might partly reflect that one side supporters or one candidate's keen enthusiasts have more money than others or are more willing to bet than others. So, for example, if there was a contest in which a, I don't know, maybe a devout Methodist was up against a horse racer, a, horse, a, a racing horse owner for, for the leadership of a political party, you could guess fairly reliably that the devout Methodist supporters would be less likely to bet than the race racehorse owner supporters. And therefore that price, the price in the betting markets might well just reflect that difference in willingness to bet rather than actual political prospects. So the overall evidence is, is fairly mixed, but it does mean it's worth paying attention and at least wondering why, if there is a significant difference between betting market prices and the polls, because that can be a good clue that, oh, maybe there's something more to think about here that we've, we've been missing. Well, Mark Pack, it's been very, very interesting, because I mean, what I've learned is it's, it's, it's much more complicated than I realised, and it changes. It's a moving target. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what keeps pollsters on their toes, is that the methodology that works brilliantly in one election might not work so well if circumstances change if there's a bit of bad luck as well perhaps at the next election so how polling's done changes but i think there are some basic principles of how to make sense of the polls which are pretty close to timeless having put a whole set of them in the final chapter of my book i obviously hope they're timeless so they don't age too badly and perhaps the most important is that the answer to almost all of the problems with polls is to pay attention to more of them you know, if you think oh, so there's a problem that sometimes polls are rogue polls, well, if you look at more polls, you're less likely to be caught out by that. If you think there's this problem about how do you model turnout, well, look at more polls done in different ways that approach that problem in different routes. That, again, gives you a more rounded answer. So generally, the more sceptical you are about a poll, the more the answer should be look at more polls. Well, thank you very much for explaining it all so clearly. My pleasure. <laughs>